Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 94 of the Double Density Podcast with your hosts, Brian and Angelo. Double Density, your home to tech tales and paranormal primers. Now, first things first, Angelo, we are recording on February 6th. Yesterday was February 5th, so happy Chinese New Year to you, Angelo, and please enjoy the Year of the Pig. At least you found a different way to get to it this time. That's true. That's true. Uh, but we are not alone for this episode. We are joined by a very special guest, uh, Dan Morin. So Dan Morin is the author of the forthcoming sci-fi espionage caper, The Bayern Agenda, which will be published by Angry Robot in March 2019. His debut novel, The Caledonian Gambit, was released in 2017. As a freelance writer, Dan's work has appeared in the Boston Globe, Macworld, Fast Company, Popular Science, Yahoo Tech, Tom's Guide, Six Colors, The Magazine, and Tidbits, among other places. He formerly served as a senior editor at Macworld. A prolific podcaster, Dan co-hosts tech podcast Clockwise and The Rebound, writes and hosts nerdy quiz show Inconceivable, and is a frequent panelist on the Parsec-winning podcast The Incomparable. Dan lives in Somerville, Massachusetts, where he plays Ultimate Frisbee and enjoys games of the video and table top variety. Dan, welcome to Double Density, a.k.a. the most Canadian thing you're probably going to do all week. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for having me. Uh, you've pretty much summed up my entire life, so I don't know what there is left for me to say. <laughs> Angela, you have nothing edited this week. This is amazing. It's been fun. See you guys next week. There we go. Done. All right. Short. To the point. I yeah. like it. <laughs> So the weird thing about you, Dan, is that you, on the one hand, are a very Angelo guest, but your tastes and hobbies and things are very me. So there's kind of like a right down the middle split. I like to think I, br- I bring people together. I'm a bridge. <laughs> That's what I do. So I guess the first thing I want to talk about is your book or your books at this point, right? So you have one coming out next month and then you've already written one. But um, the first one was several years in the making from what I remember. Uh, how does that feel to know that you're about to jump onto an entirely new adventure? <laughs> it's a little anxiety inducing i won't lie um so this, this book actually also took many years to write i like i'm finally going to hit the point pretty soon uh i will say i have a book under contract right now and i wrote a first draft of it last fall and i'm just starting to get into editing it and this will be like the first time i probably turn around a book in less than a year and that to me is terrifying so at least with this new book that's coming out uh, next month I, I've spent a long time polishing and working on that, but it is it is strange to associate so much to like hang so much on this one book that came out a couple of years ago, and it means something very different than to have a second book come out, right? Like it's it's like proving that you weren't a fluke, right? Like oh, it wasn't just one book. I I can totally got more than one book in me, uh, and so it's both similar in like remembering the whole process and the lead up to putting out a book, but it's also totally different because like. I got to rejigger a little bit like, oh, here's what this book is about. Here's how this book is different from the first book. Here's, you know, some similarities between them. But like, it's like a recalibration of my brain a little bit to try and figure out like, oh, this process is kind of similar, but also really different. What sounds really funny is that like, uh, it's kind of like that old adage about bands having their entire lives to write their debut album, then having that sophomore slump, but you have the junior year slump sort of. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what I'm looking forward to. My third year. Well, I I always quote, uh, I don't think I I heard it from Neil Gaiman, but I believe he said, um, uh, Gene Wolfe, he had told it to him, which is you never learn to write a novel. You only learn to write the novel that you're writing right now. Cause like every book is totally different. You might come out of it and be like, oh, yeah, okay, I, I get I get how to write a book. And then you sit down to write a new book, and you're like, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's that's weird because, like, there's so many tasks I can think of that are so much more repeatable. Like, you know, you, you edit a podcast, 
after you've edited about a dozen podcasts, it's like, oh, I kind of feel like, you know, I got I got a handle on this. And like even doing that for a few years, you feel like, oh, I've seen all the things that can go terribly wrong. I kind of know what to do in those cases. And I feel like I've got that down. But like book writing is a totally different beast every single time. Well, especially since it's not like you get a book done every week. It's it's years and years of work. <laughs> yeah, he's no he's no R.L. Stein here. Some people do. Those people are terrible. <laughs> and by by terrible, I mean I'm super impressed and I'm jealous. <laughs> you have a lot of output writing wise. It's it's just not uh, a structured novel, right? You're going to write a tech article. The news is there. You report it. You put your spin on things. Yeah, and absolutely. It comes out. But uh, like a novel, like uh, the Caledonian Gambit, is there's so much going on in there. When I read it, I, I started thinking it's it's one thing with this huge like space battle, and then like you go from like the Battle of Yavin type thing to like the Rogue One, right? Where it's much more a small group of people doing something and it went from like space to spy stuff it's so interesting and i'm i'm really looking forward to the byron agenda yeah you're, you're very nice to not say they gave you whiplash by going from like this giant space <laughs> opera to this like really intimate family drama so here's a very trite but like important question like where do you get your ideas from and i mean like i know that's kind of like uh <laughs> A very softball kind of question, but I'm very intrigued in this particular instance because, yeah, Angela's describing a way in which you take from the macro to the micro and you deliver this, not a sleight of hand or anything, it's just the idea of like a change of perspective. Yeah, uh, well, my favorite answer of all time to this question is, I th- oh, shoot, I think it was, oh, I'm going to get it narrowing now, it was either Douglas Adams or Terry Pratchett. They have very similar vibes, but it was uh, a small mail order company in Iowa is where I get my ideas. Um, uh, I always enjoyed that because I was like, oh, I want to know where that is. Like, please tell me because I could use that. Um I mean, you know, uh, as with any writer, I think you absorb a lot from all sorts of different sources from the world around you, things that you, you know, actually have encountered in your real life to things that you read in other books, whether they be fiction or nonfiction, TV series, movies, like, and sometimes just you don't entirely know, right? Like you got a couple neurons rubbing together and all of a sudden you're like, oh, hey, wouldn't it be interesting if these two things that seemed like they were totally separate ideas were actually one thing? I mean, I I think a lot of i i like to cook but i wouldn't say i'm a very good or original cook and so i'm always a little bit in awe of a chef right who can think oh this flavor all the way over here would go really well with this flavor over here right like i would never occur to me to combine i'm not even gonna be able to come up with something but like pepper and pineapple right like you know (laughs) and yeah i've had a really good like pineapple taco you know and like you know I, i think that's super impressive to me and i don't know what it is that triggers those kinds of things. But for me, I mean, a lot of it comes from all the pop culture I've absorbed over many years of just like things I love. And we're like, oh man, how come there's never a good story where you're in space, but there are spies? Like, I mean, let's just do that. And that, you know, it kind of decided that's what I want to write was the thing that I want to read, but didn't seem to be out there. Right. Uh, do you have a ritual? Like when it comes to to writing specifically fiction? <laughs> a ritual. Mm. I I would say that my my writing is fueled heavily by tea. Uh, I I don't think that I would probably do nearly as much if I didn't have at least one cup of tea in me. Uh, I think that's a that's a big fueling point for me. Also, getting out of the house, I, I do some writing in the house, especially when the weather in these parts is not very cooperative. But uh, most days, I walk to a coffee shop, and I usually try to put in a couple hours doing some writing or editing uh, in the morning there uh, because I like to get. 
out of my like surroundings. I like to have people around, even though, you know, some people talk about it being distracting, but for me, it helps me focus because if I'm in the house, like, and there's nothing going on, even if I can play my music as loud as I want, I'm always thinking about all the other, oh, I should do the laundry, I should do the dishes are piling up, etc. Whereas if I get out of the house for a couple hours, you know, I can sit in a coffee shop and be alone, but with people, you know, I have my headphones on right. and like, you know, I love the, the coffee shop I go to. There's a one place where there's a, uh, you know, like a bar with some stools that looks into the room, like the, the kitchen where the bakers are doing all the pastry making. I love that because like, I can sort of zone out and like be like, oh, well, they're making croissants over there. That looks cool. But then I'm like, <laughs> I'm just sort of like working in the background too. So yeah, right. I, I think that's a lot of where it goes for me is is getting out of the house, having some tea uh, and, and mornings for me tend to be the most productive time because they are very fresh. Like your brain hasn't been weighed down by all this stuff that happened during the day yet. Yeah, well, even in a regular office job, I uh, I feel a lot more productive in the morning. And uh, especially if I'm working from home, which happens on occasion, uh, the morning seems to go a lot better than the afternoon where you just kind of feel weighed down with everything that's going on. Post-lunch is death, man. Like, that's, yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's time for a nap. Like, uh, yeah, that's why I save, I try to save my less like creative uh tasks for after lunch so oftentimes i will do like a lot of podcast editing because it's like all right i'm gonna listen to this thing i'm gonna do this kind of task that i can zone into but it doesn't require me to be like generating new ideas so given that we're tech podcast i have uh and also a paranormal podcast which we'll get to later i have two very quick questions for you uh firstly what's it like running a pornography website (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so a quick story i was trying to uh, see if any new developments in dan's life had happened so at work the other day i you know i scrolled over to dan's website and the web filter at work um blocked his website and had marked it as pornography which i thought was intensely weird because i had accessed it at home before um and it still hasn't been resolved on my end and it hasn't been able to figure out what the deal is uh so yeah congrats on being a, a porn baron that picture of me is very handsome is all i'm gonna say <laughs> Uh, but secondly and most importantly though um how do you feel like writing has changed for you um throughout the years especially you know given all the technological advances and sort of um the ways in which you can use apps and as well as devices themselves and i'm kind of curious to see how it has evolved or devolved for you um well you know it really depends i've got a variety of tools and setups for depending on what kind of thing that i'm writing i will say the biggest improvements over the years um actually one of the biggest ones has been the advent of google docs because the collaboration aspect of that is so powerful so i mean and obviously google docs has been around for many a year now but like i know it wasn't that big a thing when i first started writing at least for mac world uh and so having the ability to have like i've co-written articles literally with like people in google docs Um, when we put out, when Jason Snell, my colleague and I put out the six colors newsletter every month, that's all written in Google docs. Um, and like, I think that's one really big aspect is the collaborative part, the ability to have that real time, uh, collaboration and like, uh, accountability too, right? Like it wasn't like a thing where it's like, I wrote something in a text file and I sent it to my friend and then they changed a bunch of stuff and sent it back. And I had no idea what they changed. Uh, like it actually tracks all that and, and lets you sort of, Uh, pull together your resources i think that's been a big one for me in a fiction writing capacity uh i've used scrivener for many many years and i really love it i know that it can be a little divisive amongst people because it's it's a complicated piece of software i will i will say i haven't 
I use probably like 10% of the features, I think, probably. But the thing that I like about it is that it does a really nice job of letting me break up something as big as a novel into these bite-sized chunks. So I have like different files for each chapter. And that's my the way my brain works. I know people who use Scrivener that have different files for each scene. And then like each chapter is a folder inside a like larger folder that's like a whole manuscript. Uh, and I, then again, I also know people who, you know, sit down and write in Word, like a multi-hundred thousand word novel. And I, I can't understand how you do that. I was like, well, <laughs> how do you find anything? Like, oh, that sounds like nightmarish. But everybody's got processes that work differently for them. So the the other big advent, I would say, in the last few years is obviously the iPad. I don't do a lot of fiction writing on the iPad. I do some. I mainly use the iPad. If I'm writing, it's usually for work. I'll write like my Macworld columns on the iPad often because it lets me sort of focus in on what I'm doing and not get distracted because, man, there's nothing worse than being on deadline and like staring at a blank page and then being like, nah, what what's happening on Twitter right now? And he's like, I have not gotten anything done. So, uh, the iPad, I love taking my, I've got like a, a 10.5 inch pro. So the, not the most recent generation, but the one before that. And I'll take that to a coffee shop and just sit down and sort of like, all right, here's my word processor. It's up. It's taken up the whole screen. There's nothing else happening. I'm going to like sit down and write. Uh, and then invariably, like I need to look something up. So I love at least that now there's a split screen where I can just be like, oh, I need to look something up and refer to it while I'm writing, pop out a little Safari split screen and refer to that. So other than that, though, I mean, you know, writing is writing like the, the, at the end of the day, the tools don't matter as much as the ability to just like get something down on the page. So for me, the, the basics haven't changed. It's just maybe some of the trappings a little bit. I can't imagine doing this podcast without uh, Google Docs, like we're using it right now. Oh, sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I, it's huge for that kind of thing. It makes things so much easier, especially collaborating with people, like, especially when you have guests and you don't really know each other. You just, hey, here's a link, take a look, and then we're here chatting. It's great. Yeah, we couldn't do clockwise without it. Like it is, it is, we have a spreadsheet, a Google spreadsheet that basically just gets shared around and it's, it's impossible to do it without being able to refer to that. I marvel at clockwise in that you always manage to get it at 30 minutes. Like, well, I mean, that's called, that's called editing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, but it's, it's just impressive how does it, how, how far does it ever go over? Or is that a secret you don't want to divulge? <laughs> uh, I will say at most, I don't know if I've ever cracked the 40 minute mark, but I've definitely had to cut from 38 to 30. And that is. Okay. Eight minutes is a lot when you're dealing with that number of topics, right? Because you can't, if it's nice, if you've got like a digression and somebody like goes off on a thing for a minute and you're like, oh yeah, I can just cut all that. But sometimes you start like trimming and then you're like, oh man, I am at 32 minutes now. And two minutes out of a 30 minute podcast is a not insubstantial percentage. So I go in and I'm like snipping sentences and like gluing stuff together and you get very good at some of it. And it like for me, it yeah. is a there is some satisfaction to an edit where it's like, oh, nobody Seamless. will even notice this is gone. Uh, and so, yeah, there's not a lot of options sometimes because, you know, like I'll cut out like banter or stuff like, oh, like Mike and I've got some banner at the top. That's going to have to go. You know, sometimes if we don't have uh, an ad in the back half of the show, you can cut the bonus topic. But I liked I like the bonus topic. So I try not to do that. But yeah, it's a. It is a hard job. So at most I try to I usually try to tell people like when they're coming on, like, hey, you got about a minute and a half <laughs> on average for your topic. <laughs> Keep an eye on the clock. 
The, I feel sometimes you can really work some magic with editing. Like in the most recent episode I edited, I managed to splice like two words together for Brian to say mm. something that I, I didn't like how the, the middle of of it was. And it, it, sure. you don't notice it. It's incredible what you can do. Oh, yeah. It's, it's startling. And I can make Brian say whatever I want. <laughs> Thanks, Angelo. The other big thing that we don't tend to use for podcasting, though, is music. Uh, just coming from an audio editing background, like music can really mask mistakes. Sure. Um, but a lot of podcasts are naked like that, right? So you can't really do that. Right. And even if you do, like, you got to be careful, too, right? You don't want to ever get music in a place where it's like, oh, no, now I have to splice the thing that already has music in it. And yeah. I have to make the music <laughs> yeah, exactly. match. That's way harder. And like, Ugh. yeah, I have to, I have a longer edit. It took me a while. But the theme song for Inconceivable is like... I don't know, like 30 seconds long or something. And for a long time, Lex Friedman, who was my announcer on the show, would he would always do a perfectly, like, it would, it would sync perfectly to the music. Uh, he'd do his little intro, and, like, I wouldn't need to do anything. But he started doing longer and longer ones. And, like, <laughs> oh, my God, the song's not this long, Lex. So I had to finally, like try to make like a looped edit in in logic of like oh it's just now i've i've stretched it to like 45 seconds and hopefully nobody can hear the music loop because he's talking over it <laughs> but yeah that's that's a struggle i find myself doing that at the end sometimes we we end with like when brian says okay and that's it for this episode i i start playing our music in the background but everyone's like go on forever at the end <laughs> and i've had to loop our song twice over itself oh yeah i think we've made i think in my folder right now i have the standard 45 second and then you made me a long one and then i made one of those um i don't know if you remember the fad a couple years ago of like slowing the justin bieber song down by like 800 percent um but i have a <laughs> 13 and a half minute version of it that just sounds like mumbling wow uh, so there's a bit of everything going on yeah and i mean i have the original song like i i made the song on an ipad in my bed like just using the <laughs> garage band and it's like so i can go in and just like re-edit it and add stuff it's just i'm too lazy to do that well, well you haven't mentioned the best part of being an editor on any podcast which is your jokes always land because if they mm. yes during recording it's like oh, just move those laughs over <laughs> oh yeah Double density. so pivoting from uh, your book to uh, talking about inspiration uh, for writing, uh, pivoting to podcasting. Now, something you brought up today on Twitter, which I thought was very interesting, um, is the concept of freelancing and making sure that you as a freelancer are mindful of what freelancing is all about. And I thought that was a really interesting kind of way of, of going about and kind of explaining um, a lot of like different kinds of things in terms of like uh, freelancing as an artistic pursuit. Yeah, well, there's a debate kind of raging. Uh, I'm only on the periphery of a sort of writing, publishing Twitter, but there was a debate going on about like, should you quit your day job? You know, and and I'm certainly not one to give advice in either way. I do have stories about I quit my day job, but that was before I went to Macworld even. Um, but I I left Macworld. Uh, I'm going to do math now. Uh, not about four and a half years ago. Uh, and I've been freelancing since then. This is not my first in freelancing. I was a freelancer before uh, I was full-time at Macworld for a little over a year. Um, and I learned that I did so badly at freelancing the first time around because I had no idea what I was doing that when I came back to freelancing after Macworld, I was like, oh, I'm definitely not going to make the same mistakes that I made the first time. Uh, and that was... A really interesting experience and for me you know part of the reason i felt comfortable freelancing was after seven years of Macworld, i you know i knew the industry i knew the stories i knew the topics like i was very comfortable and it was just a matter of sort of transitioning to doing that stuff for myself instead of doing it for a publication and obviously i do still write for Macworld, so like that's still a part of the equation but freelancing i you know i i think there's people like 
sort of uh, even using the term freelancing, I think is in some ways misleading because yes, you are a freelancer. You don't work for a company, but you are, you are essentially running a business. It's a business who only, you know, that only has one employee and it's you, but it is still got to be treated like a business. And that means that you have to not only be doing the work of whatever freelance work you're doing, right? For me, writing and sometimes editing uh, and podcasting for me as well, but also all the administrative stuff that used to get taken care of for you. So, you know, accounting, scheduling for me, marketing, um, all sorts of like I've made, you know, I've had to deal with um, hiring uh, an a, a editor, for uh, uh, something I was writing, I had to, you know, I've I've ordered merchandise and like sort of figured out how to produce merchandise, which was kind of an interesting experience. Um, and so uh, there are all these other ancillary things and you really got to treat it like a job. And and I think for me, always accounting is the biggest example of that because, you know, there's nobody else who is going to keep track of your finances. You've got to do that yourself. And if you can afford to hire someone, then you're doing pretty well. But like, for me, I keep track of all of that in and out for, you know, the entire year. So that when it comes to, mm-hmm. to like having to do my taxes, uh, I do have a person that I hire to do that because I've learned that not doing that is a bad idea for me. Um, but it still means I got to be able to provide them with records of all the stuff I have like done over the last year. Right. And and that's that's hard. Like those are skills that most people who are going to freelancing are not thinking. I I want to go into freelancing because I want to do my own accounting. You know, like they're thinking, oh, I want to <laughs> I want to write articles for all these different people, or I want to do commission artwork, or I want to do freelance podcast editing, or whatever. And it's like that's that's only part of the job because you are running a whole company essentially by yourself. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised you haven't mentioned the biggest singular pain in the butt, which is the big I invoicing. And so I'm going to give you 90 seconds to air out anyone who hasn't paid you in an appropriate time frame. <laughs> uh, I, uh, there, there may be some people out there who are a little slow on paying. Uh, fortunately, in some of those ways, like that's the one nice part about for my books. I have an agent. My agent deals with that. Like essentially just the end of the day, I get a check from them. But they have to do the hard work of shaking everybody down. But that's only for a very <laughs> right. small right. section of of my income. So, like, <laughs> for most as someone of it, who used to, yeah. Fr- yeah, as someone who used to freelance more frequently, I definitely feel you there. I, you know, um, most regularly worked for an alt weekly who sometimes, you know, their bank coffers were kind of empty. So you never knew mm-hmm. when you were getting mm-hmm. a check whether or not it was going to one uh, clear, and then two, if you actually managed to get the check in the first place. Yeah, well, I mean, what was interesting was when I worked at Macworld, I was the person who ran a lot of our freelancers. And so I became I I, I don't know, I like I, I became friends with like a guy in the accounting department because I knew that would be beneficial because he always made sure my freelancers got paid. And I knew that if something went wrong and I had some freelancers who were like, I had one who was in Canada. I had one who was in India for a little while, like trying to deal with that you know, was kind of tricky. I didn't want to be dealing with like a faceless, you know, the faceless accounting department. So I had my guy and I could be like, Hey, how's like this going? I know this is kind of weird or whatever. Like, can you, right. do you know what is going on with this? And so like, that was, that was huge. And so I always like, you know, just, uh, I don't know, that goes back to my maximum of just, you know, be nice to people. Like, cause you get so much further <laughs> yeah. in life if you're just nice to everybody. <laughs> So I know in New York, these, the, there's the, like the freelance isn't free act, right? Well, you, you have to pay in a certain like timely kind of order. Is there something uh, sort of like equivalent in Massachusetts? Uh, man, I don't know if there is, man. <laughs> I should probably check that out, huh? 
<laughs> the only reason I know about this is because last week there was this rapper named Sheck West and he hadn't paid a production company for a music video. So they had uploaded uh, the completed music video, scrubbed the music track and just put sound effects and them screaming over it. Um, and uh, people were surmising that they were uh, out of NYC and they hadn't been paid in a timely manner. And even they had traded like Snapchat stories with the rapper in question and he told them to go away. So, wow, that is awesome. I fortunately have never been in that situation, but I'm definitely going to check that out just in case somebody decides not to pay me because I don't have anything. <laughs> what can I? I'm just trying to think what I could do that wouldn't actually just end up shooting myself in the foot, honestly. Right. Well, the thing is, like, this production company now had a ton of views on their own version of the video because the whole thing is that the video had been shelled by the record label. So their thinking process was because it didn't come out, we're not going to pay you, which is not how uh, freelancing works at all. No. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, no, I don't like that. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, common sense would dictate that it's a bad movie either way right so yeah I, I like to get paid that's you know i i like working for myself but i also like to get paid because i like to eat uh i like to have yeah. a house all those things are Listen, really like, nice you're getting married uh in 2019 right i am that's true so yeah i, I would like to be able to still do that <laughs> there we go another, another thing you guys have in common <laughs> it's true actually yeah i'm getting married in june oh man, i'm getting married in july it is uh oh boy it is fun times <laughs> Now, now we go into the wedding planning portion uh, of the no, don't start, don't go down that road. That is a dark path that will dom- forever <laughs> dominate your destiny. I'll tell you that. Double density. Pivoting to things that are fun, though, um, the I don't think we get to talk about the concept of tabletop gaming too much here on Double Density. Um, but I do know that you have a background in this, and it is a pursuit that you uh, do love. So I was kind of wondering if you kind of explain your your uh, personal history with tabletop gaming, as well as sort of like how tech has uh, either helped or hindered um, things like DMing or like running a party. Uh, yeah, my my tabletop gaming goes back till I uh, geez, uh, probably started when I was eight, nine, somewhere in there, maybe a little later. Um, I first started playing at like camp uh, when I was maybe around that age, and I got pretty quickly into it. And I remember in junior high school, I conv- we convinced uh, one of our our teachers to sort of sponsor us for starting a D and D club, uh, and I ran some adventures in that for friends. Um, and then we we basically I had this long history of playing like we just had all these tabletop games and we would just try all these different RPGs and I would uh, basically like we started getting to the point where we like got tired of the games that were out there and we start just making our own RPGs. So I made one based on I made a next a TNG Star Trek Next Generation RPG. Uh, my friends and I made one based on the tick, the comic book. Uh, like we just had all these various things. We're like, Oh, this is great. Let's make an RPG based on this thing. And so, uh, I, we did a lot of that up probably through like mid high school. And it kind of died off a little bit. And then about, Oh, a little over 10 years ago now when uh fourth edition of D and D came out, actually uh, a couple friends, I was going up to, uh, to a cabin on a lake that my uncle has and with a few of my friends from college and they had seen that the uh, fourth edition D&D was out and they're like oh if we buy these books will you like run the intro adventure for us and I was like yeah sure I haven't done it in years but that's fine uh and so we sort of kicked off I 
by running that and like that turned into like an online campaign because we all lived in different places uh and that sort of spiraled into actually uh one of the people to join my online campaign there was my friend tony sindelar who now runs a ton of games for uh total party kill on the incomparable network um and it just sort of all went from there and i mainly still play D, but i've played some other games as rpg games in more recent years um and I really, uh, I've always enjoyed it a lot. Um, as far as the tech angle on it goes, it's actually, well, tech and RPGs are is such an interesting dynamic because it's both incredibly helpful to have these things that do so much of this math for you, especially in things like the fourth edition of D&D that were incredibly heavy on all these little details that were so easy to forget. Um, so having like a tool that would build your character sheets and that could keep track of that uh, with fifth edition D&D, like uh, the D&D Beyond service has been a huge mm-hmm. advantage to like being able to like create your characters and not worry about rolling dice and all this and that. Um, and so I, when I play either uh, online or in person with some of my groups, I usually have my iPad. I'm usually got my D&D Beyond sheet open so I can refer to it. Uh, and that's great. Um, and online, especially when you're like, you know, doing a podcast, it's great to be able to have a resource for looking up rules uh, that's searchable because like flipping through a giant player's handbook is a pain, especially when the index is terrible. Um, yes. But... It also comes with its downsides, especially well in both cases, both online and in person, which is that it's also tremendously distracting, right? Like I'll sit there with an iPad in front of me looking at my character sheet, but if a bunch of other people in the group are doing something else, the tendency or like the temptation to go and look at other stuff, oh, I'll just check Twitter while they're talking, like is so high. And I feel like I've definitely been in groups where that has distracted people and disengaged them from playing, which is kind of a bummer. So you know, there's always this this temptation for me to do something like, you know, I should ban, you know, phones at the table or whatever. But it's kind of hard to do that, like, and and have people be okay with it because there are so many tools that are actually useful. So, you know, I guess it's it's kind of a double-edged sword in that way. My friend group kind of came around uh, during uh, fourth edition. So that's kind of like the baseline for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I ran a campaign. Um, and the big advantage, I think, was the AV component to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was very big on like having a playlist for songs for certain events. Sure. Or if they like they managed to have certain thresholds. I found it a lot easier in terms of planning um a lot of the sort of like the physical kind of things, like trying to figure out, you know, if there's an encounter um, where these people are placed as well as like keep notes and things like that um, before sessions, not necessarily during, but I found it easier to sort of refer to things very quickly instead of having to flip back and forth through a binder. Yeah. And Google docs is huge there too. I, a lot of my campaigns, we keep adventure journals that are collaborative between all the players and sometimes the DM. And that's, that's a huge uh, advantage too, right? It's just like have a, a document where people can be like, Oh, I remember this detail that happened. Let me put that in. So that everybody knows that, right? Like that was that was a big deal. I have a I have a cousin who is super big into D and D, and he was one of the guys who got me into it. And he still runs games, and he has like a he's like a fantastic like crafter guy. So he's always like building stuff for his his tables. But he also has done like the whole all right. We've got like a TV in our game room where we can project the map, or like we've got working on like a projector that we can sort of display the map on a table, and like all this crazy stuff that I if I had the space and resources to do, I would totally be on board with because it's it's pretty cool. I I love. I love the stuff that's enabled and especially playing online now with stuff like Roll20, which is the the website that lets you sort of have a virtual game table. The stuff is so powerful and so polished. Like 
for years, my friends and I relied on this open source tool called MapTool, which is kind of the same sort of virtual tabletop thing. But it was so the epitome of open source software. Like everything had there was like a every window looked terrible because it was all like Java based. So even on the Mac, it kind of looked like a Windows app. And then it had like all these preferences and checkbox like that was so customizable to account for like every single scenario like clearly one person was once like oh but when i move my character diagonally it should count this many squares instead of this squares and like all right we'll put in a drop down menu for that and you're like oh my god why are there this many preferences (laughs) (laughs) um something i really find interesting though is that i feel like wizards of the coast has really democratized how people um can play the game like they released those free pdfs with Mm -hmm. i think fifth Mm -hmm. edition if i'm not mistaken yep and so uh, a lot of the barriers for entry were cost related back in the day in the 80s like you had to buy the books you had to kind of understand um the flow of the game you couldn't necessarily do that on your own whereas now there are like a myriad number of resources that you can just watch tutorials on youtube and then like get some friends together and kind of explain them how to do it um with pdfs that just cost you know the number amount of like pages you need to print out Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, allowing those basic rules to be available for free is great because it just brings so many more people into the game. And that are not only is that potential customers for Wizards of the Coast, but it's also just like it's great for kids, too, who are like starting out and don't have I had no money. Right. Like I had when I was 10 doing this, like I was entirely dependent on like a box that my, you know, my cousin had given me uh everything or depend on my parents to buy stuff or like spending my hard-earned allowance on like these lead figures you know and and that was restrictive at the time but the idea now that like any kid with an ipad can be like or a computer or anything can just be like oh yeah i'm just gonna print out these like 20 pages of rules and we can basically run like a group you know from that like that is the whole point of this is like freedom of imagination and being able to make up these stories collaboratively so to like not lock that back i think is a really smart move for them well, you guys have like inspired me. I almost want to go get it for my my daughter. I know she'd love this because she's nine. She likes this type of stuff, and I think she would probably enjoy it. And then you know it'd be fun for me, like a learning experience. Let's let's make it an experiment for the podcast, Brian. Double density. Dan, I follow you on Twitter, and I watched you uh, live tweet the Justice League movie. Your your first viewing of it, and I I enjoyed it. Anyone can go check that out at the Justice <laughs> League. Uh, hashtag slash so G-U-S-T-U-S league. Uh, I implore you to go do that. Um, it was fun to watch your feelings and my feelings feel very similar because when I had watched it some months ago, I was very, very angry about it. Um, and I'm kind of curious, like it's been a couple of weeks removed. Do you still feel angry about the Justice League movie? I can't, I, I don't even feel like I can summon the energy to be angry about it. It's just, <laughs> it's just so like, it's so meh. Like I, I had seen, I went back and watched this because I had watched uh, Aquaman with my family over Christmas and I came out of that being like, yeah, that was not great. I mean, it wasn't bad, but it also definitely wasn't good. It was just boring. And like, oh, you know, how, how do you make superheroes boring? Like that's, that's kind of an accomplishment. And so I was like, well, I'll watch Justice League and just see, you know, my fiance's out of town. I got a couple hours to kill and I'm going to tweet it because it's, it's too, it's too ridiculous not to tweet. Uh, and so, yeah, thanks for reading that. I'm sorry that you had to suffer <laughs> through it. Uh, I lost, I lost some Twitter followers. <laughs> Didn't want to read about it. It was fine. Whatever. Yeah, I I still feel very mad about it. I I just those are such iconic characters and it's amazing to me that you could do just such a 
a blah job of bringing them to life because it seems like these should be exciting and fun. And as someone who's a big fan of the old, um, the justice league cartoons from the like mid two thousands, uh, those are great. They're so well done. Like there's so much nuance and interesting characters captured and so much humor done well. And it's just, it's so the snack Snyder justice league is just such the opposite of that. It has, it has nothing going for it really like there's just i I cannot think of really a redeeming quality i i'm so glad to hear they are at least rebooting batman movies because that was it's just a shame it's just a shame are you talking about the the detective centric uh batman movie that ben affleck is like no longer doing yeah yeah i i guess they're yeah doing i don't know what they are doing they but they've said ben affleck will not be a part of or he'll not be batman essentially so I'm I'm here to check that out though. I feel like you have some challenges and over like anything that where you're trying like keep rebooting the same characters over and over again. Yeah. Like Spider-Man yeah. had a lot of challenges with that and I think they've finally gotten to a point that's really stable, but like there is a point where people were super sick of Spider-Man, right? Because Absolutely. there were so many Spider-Man movies. And so, you know, my my fiance was especially like she's like, "Yeah, I don't want to watch another Spider-Man movie." And I was like, "No, you got to watch Homecoming. It's actually really good. You'll really like it." And I finally convinced her to watch it, and she's like, "Yeah, that was pretty good." And then I convinced her to watch Spider-Verse 2, which was also kind of a coup, and she really liked that as well. I felt like really gratified about that. But like I can understand why a lot of people were turned off by the fact that it's like, oh, God, you know, it's been how many years and how many Spider-Man movies do we have? Uh, so, you know, <laughs> Batman has kind of a similar problem going like, you know, just rewatched yeah. for the incomparable Batman Begins. And it's a really good movie. It's not without its flaws, but it's a really good movie. And so when they did sort of the heel turn uh, with Justice League and Batman versus Superman and all that, it's like, oh, you just went the wrong direction. <laughs> like you took you took the wrong messages it's so weird because they've had like almost 80 years of of batman stories to call from and the fact that like this is all you have to come up with is kind of super depressing uh in a certain way that zack snyder kind of like looked away from all of this rich lore in order to sort of uh craft and forge his own vision which ultimately uh not much of a vision in the end I, i i feel like he doesn't care about any of it like to me there's nothing in any of those characters that is terribly recognizable as sort of their iconic counterparts. Whereas I feel like Marvel kind of went the entirely opposite direction of taking these characters who were even less known and turning them into iconic characters. Right. So like, mm-hmm. can you, can you picture Iron Man now without, without Robert Downey Jr.? It's like impossible because he has become so emblematic of that role because they took a character who, you know, certainly had his fan base, but he was not a household name superhero. And now like it is inextricably linked to Robert Downey Jr. and that image and that portrayal of that character. So like DC went the other way of taking these characters. Like I had Batman pajamas as a kid, right? Like I knew what Batman was about uh, and, and taking him and just making him in some ways, the blandest superhero, you know, around, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's incredible to me that they pulled that off. <laughs> Well, it's also weird, like, like Superman kills a dude in Man of Steel, yeah. right? So, yeah, I like, don't, don't, I, I just feel like it's such started. a stretch. <laughs> I, 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 no, I, I disliked, I had such hope for that after I saw yeah. the trailer. I love the trailer for Man of Steel. Then I went to see the movie, and I was like, this is so bad. <laughs> like, this is, yeah. just takes it's, everything. It's almost cynical. It is incredibly cynical. And there's, there's stuff in there that's like the hint of an almost interesting idea, like having Batman deal with the sort of the fallout of superman's big battle you know with zod like 
like there's a whole like 9-11 angle on that and whatever. I mean, like I can kind of understand like, okay, there's something interesting in there, but it was put up against these portrayals that were so alien, frankly, to like the characters that people know and love because it felt like, let me like, let me alienate you from these characters by making them, you know, portraying Superman as a God uncaring of, you know, the innocence. Like, I don't know. It's just not, it's not a character I recognize or a character I'm terribly sympathetic to or interested in. Have you read uh, Tom Taylor's injustice? No, I have not. Okay, because uh, he takes the sort of same concept, but actually makes it work really, really well. Uh, Superman becomes a tyrant, uh, sort of a god, but um, uh, kind of like in a way that makes sense and his actions make sense. So I feel like it's what should have been for Man of Steel, perhaps, or what Zack Snyder was envisioning and then unfortunately kind of screwed things up very yeah. terribly. Interesting. <laughs> no, I will. I will once again extol my my love of the Justice League uh, cartoons from the uh, the mid 2000s, because I feel like those do a great job. Uh, with all of those characters, especially because you get a Kevin Conroy Batman and Kevin Conroy from the animated series is, is my favorite Batman. He's the only Batman. He's the best Batman. Yeah, and, but DC nails those cartoons. They do oh, yeah. such a good I mean, job. Uh, oh yeah. The, I mean, the Batman animated series is, is a work of art. Yeah. Uh, there's no arguing with that. I, and I like a lot of the ones that came after that. They're not necessarily of the same quality, like in terms of just how high they reach, but they're still well executed they're fun. They've got a good like sense of humor, which I feel like is so lacking from the movies. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. All those things. I feel like they, they do a much better job and I would argue a much better job than Marvel, which has never quite nailed the animated series form factor. No, it's like the opposite. I feel like it, it also with the VOD, um, the movies, right? So the death of Superman, the Ren of Superman, the, ba- the Batman stuff, the more mature animated movies that you can purchase on Blu-ray or, you know, view on Netflix are a superior product to anything Marvel's ever done animated wise. I haven't, wa- I've only watched one or two of those and I felt like they okay. were, f- they were, they were not bad. Um, I don't, I haven't sought most of them out, but yeah, I think when it comes to DC, I tend to be a, uh, uh, the, uh, a live action TV guy. For whatever reason, that seems to be the form fa- the form factor that has really sort of resonated with me. <laughs> so everything happens to do with the Arrowverse, basically. Well, yeah, because that's. I mean, I do a whole show recapping Arrow, and it's, it's not, <laughs> there not, we go. Yeah, not for <laughs> uh, not by any coincidence. Um, <laughs> uh, my fiance's mother, uh, is in her sixties and she's, uh, watching the flash TV series because in Canada it updates on Netflix on a weekly basis. Mm. And I warned her going in that it was going to get very confusing. And uh, every week she kind of seems astounded as how, to how it gets more and more confusing. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot going on. I, I had my, my fiance watched the first two seasons of that with me and then she kind of bailed out. I've kept watching just for continuity sakes. And I think it's had its ups and downs as a show but yeah they uh it's one of those things where every once in a while i have to pause and be like wait a second where did we last see that character how does that work how much time travel is going on here i'm gonna have to go back and and i think i stopped after season two or halfway through season three season three is pretty bad I definitely rage quit at the uh, the end of season two. I just I couldn't do it anymore because it was just back and forth all over and over again. I will <sighs> I, I will say if you if you gave up on Legends of Tomorrow because of its truly I, I did yes. yeah oh okay it's it's first season is truly execrable it's terrible <laughs> it's really bad and then about halfway through the second season they're like you know what we just need to sort of pull out all of the stops. 
and just get wacky. And it just escalates yeah. from there. And their season three and season four are just amazingly bizarre. All bets are off. Like, let's just go wild. And it's fantastic. I feel like it it speaks to the the source material really well, like especially the the, the early stuff, like the fifties and sixties kind of stuff that has like a, that weird zany quality to it. And I feel like they've kind of decided to wear that. Yeah, no, and they they owned it. I mean, that's what they did. Is they're like, you know what, this is our tone. We're gonna rock it. And the second they sort of decided to do that, it felt like a lot of stuff that hadn't worked well, like hadn't really been in sync or whatever, just like all of it locked in and they were firing on all cylinders. And and some of it was cutting dead weight from the cast. And some of it was like abandoning storylines that didn't really work or or a tone that didn't work. And like, for whatever reason around the end of season two, beginning of season three, it was all of a sudden like, Oh, we have nailed this. We know exactly who we are and what show we're making. Double density. Okay. So Dan, you wake up tomorrow morning, uh, the keys to the DC Cinematic Universe are in your hand. Uh, what are like the first couple of steps that you do? I mean, I use the keys to unlock the vault, and then I dive in Scrooge McDuck style. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think hmm, I, I think that that just like there's an argument for just like translating the TV stuff onto the big screen. I don't know that that necessarily works because there's like a scale issue. But what I think I do is try to find I honestly I, I would love to just see it totally wiped and reinvented. And so I the best example I can think of that, and I retweeted this uh last week, I want to say, was uh Jamel Bowie, who is a New York Times writer. The Black Batman. Yeah. Uh he and so he was actually on a I was actually on an incomparable episode with him once. Like he we, we had him on to talk about slang Star Trek really, because he loves Star Trek. And we uh he did that that tweet thread about like what if batman was black and like he just sort of re-examined like through the lens of you know the african-american experience like what that would mean and i was like holy crap like this sounds amazing it just sounds so it's a take that's both loyal to the idea of batman like the crucial concept of who that character is and yet it puts such a different spin on it that it, it feels so original at the same time and that is so hard to do like i mean the best example i feel like of that is something like into the spider-verse which takes the idea of like an origin story and totally just like kind of 180s it like it's still recognizable as an origin story but it's done so differently from any origin story you've seen in any other format um and and i think that would be incredible i would love to find some takes of that variety of like let's take this iconic character and do something that that feels like it is accurate to that character, but let's put a totally different look on it. Um, so yeah, going out and finding those kinds of, of views and angles on these like time, because like Superman, I love, I, I like Superman. He's not one of my favorite characters, but I, I like him. And when he's done well, I feel like I really, really appreciate it. And what you need is somebody who has the kind of take on that, that like, I mean, Captain America was a character that felt very two dimensional, I think, in a lot of ways until more recent year, like the like late 20th, early 21st century sort of takes on him. And I feel like you need somebody with that kind of vision on the the Superman side because you don't want to play it as cynical like that doesn't work for that character. But you do want to try and come at it from a different angle, like what is the intrinsic nature of this character and how do we like have a lens that lets us see the similarities, but also kind of like frame it in a different way. And I think that that is a really 
really hard thing to do. Uh, and so I, I would love to see those kinds of of really radically different thinking around these characters. I love that. Uh, when do you start? <laughs> <laughs> I am not qualified. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you, so basically like uh, keys still in hand, uh, you have to cancel one of the two Joker movies, right? So Jared Leto, Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix, which would you uh, lean closer to canceling? Is both of them an option? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, listen, you're the head of this, right? Yeah, so. I will. T- oh God, I cannot think of a character that I give a crap about less than the Joker. Um, I have one, I have one and her name is Harley Quinn. Ah, uh, yeah. I, you know what? I know people who really like Harley Quinn. She is not one of my favorites, but I, I respect that. Um, I am somewhat interested to see what they do with this Birds of Prey movie that they're working on because that seems like it could be very interesting. Um, and I like some of the people who are involved in that. It's kind of bananas cast. Like Ewan McGregor is playing Black Mask. Super weird. <laughs> but like the Joker is not. All right, you can make a movie about a character who is a villain or an anti-hero, but like the Joker is not a character with any redeeming qualities whatsoever, right? Like I, I can't I mean, I, I just have a hard time feeling like you want to make this person the protagonist of one, much less two movies. Um yeah. so yeah, I, I don't think that is what you should be looking to harvest from the wide expanse of dc characters right like i understand maybe like green lanterns like a little bit of a no-go zone after the ryan reynolds movie which i saw in theaters but but you slip him in somewhere else right like so interesting like there's interesting stuff you could do with that character like green lantern has some cool stuff like guardians of the galaxy worked right like you've got the idea of making like an outer space movie with you know this interstellar police force like there is like what if it was like a police procedural right like that would be super cool like a police like frame it like a police procedural but it's it's in space (laughs) i'm giving this away i think that's that's how grant morrison is writing his current miniseries pretty much he has said that this is like a police procedural right yeah like there's so they're they're, again it's an interesting but like true to the character but a different spin on these things so I would, yeah, I would cancel all the Joker movies. I feel like don't, <laughs> don't overdo the Batman thing. Batman is a character best used kind of sparingly um, because you don't want, he's so valuable. You don't want to oversaturate him. And like the way yeah. they do that, I feel like is so dumb because they have the things like we can't show Batman on the TV shows, right? Like there's no, the, the Arrowverse shows don't have Batman gotham doesn't you know like it's only proto batman right like because we can't dilute the big screen brand like they did that with suicide squad and the Arrowverse stuff too like they literally renamed it in the most recent there was an episode where they had suicide squad early on in arrow and then they decide to make a movie out of it and they wouldn't let them use it anymore on the tv show to the point where there's like a recent episode where they rename it and a character jokes about like, oh, this is basically just a rebranded version of Suicide Squ-. And then the other characters like cut him off. Like, no, no, we don't call it that anymore. And you're like, <laughs> oh, God, guys, come on. So, yeah, I would I would break down those barriers, too, because I think that's all dumb. I stopped watching it, but Supergirl introduced Superman. And I was actually really surprised about that. Yeah, he was in the most recent crossover, too. And like, I felt like, guess what? I have no problem reconciling that there's a Superman on the TV show and there's a Superman in the movie theater and they're not connected. <laughs> like, It'll give us a little bit of credit. Yeah, we, we are all very, very like media savvy individuals at this point. And I feel like we are all capable of holding those two thoughts in our head at the same time. 
Exactly. You had kind of mentioned uh, using Batman sparingly, and I quite agree. Uh, before you were talking about Captain America and his uh, Ed Brubaker's run, sort of like that kind of transformed the character to something else. Another series I would love to see actually would be Gotham Central, and that would oh, be yeah. a great place for Batman to kind of pop in once in a while, right? So, Angelo, because I know you're not aware of this, it's basically <laughs> the Gotham PD kind of dealing with all of this superhero stuff around them. Yeah, that's uh, that's Greg Rucka, right? Like, I think um, I read the run of it uh, a few years ago that somebody lent me, and it's really good. I felt like kind of they almost tried to do that for Gotham when they started the TV show. In fact, there are some of the characters in there are characters who are used like prominent in Gotham Central, and then they kind of wrote them out because they were like, oh, we don't really have any play- like there are too many people in this show. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that that's an interesting angle. Um, uh, yeah, there's a lot, there's so much good stuff. There's so much. Yeah. That like, you keep going back to just the well of like, I mean, look how long it took them to make a wonder woman movie. It's ridiculously long given how important that character is and how prominent they are. Like not just in the DC universe, but like, you know, she, the first issue of Ms. Magazine had wonder woman on the cover. My friend who's a huge wonder woman fan has that on her wall. Like how, how did it take you this long to turn that into a modern motion picture? And it's the one good DC movie. Yeah. And even it's not the best. Like, yeah. Even it's not great. Like, well, yeah, but the problem is I'm comparing it to the other ones. Oh, yeah. It's way better than anything else out there. Like, I, I would still argue that it might not get as high as some of the Marvel movies just in terms of its like storytelling things. But like, it's certainly the best of the DC movies head and shoulders. <laughs> Like Marvel has some great stuff like Ant-Man and Wasp, which I watched again this weekend with my daughter. And it's it's just so different, but so good. Yeah, I, I really loved that one. In fact, I love the first Ant-Man, too. And I yeah, just, me too. Uh, small, small scope stuff uh, works very nicely in superhero. Like, I feel like that's what that was one of the successes of Homecoming, too, which is the the idea of a villain who's not in it to take over the world, you know, just wants to, like, accomplish their own little goal and... You know, they really do a nice job in both of those movies of having the villain be the hero of their own story, as it were. Uh, you know, that's sort of trite to say, but like they had a whole thing going on, and it's not like I'm an evil guy bent on evilness. It was like, no, I've got this goal. I'm trying to achieve this goal, and you are just in my way. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Keaton just needs that retirement fund, I think. Ultimately, <laughs> I think that's what it is. <laughs> And I think, Angelo, uh, it's time to wrap up the tech section, which has become kind of nebulous in general. What do you think? I think it's fine. I think it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, we've talked about a lot of things that are a little over my head in terms of comics and uh, board games and stuff, but... Board uh, games, wow. It's, it's, always, it's always fun to, to, uh, to be on my own podcast and learn something, so it's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let us head on over to the paranormal section in that case. Yeah, sounds good. What's this? Kids with a cellular phone? Introducing Amigo from Cantown. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Double Density. Welcome back to Double Density. As always, we're switching gears from tech to the paranormal. So this week, Dan, we've decided to pick your brain on a number of topics as to uh, what scares you. Uh, do you care about any of this? Uh, does anything thrill you? Um, so, Angela, I feel like you should lead things off as our uh, resident reasonable person. Yeah. So, the, yeah. So the whole reason for me being on a paranormal podcast is because I'm fascinated by people believing in this as somebody who's like a non-believer in paranormal, right? It's like... I don't think there's aliens visiting us. I don't think there's anything beyond our own uh, minds playing tricks on us. And I'm so I'm sure there's people yelling at their iPhones right now listening to this. But 
which side do you fall on this, Dan? Well, I, I would not say, hmm, as a, as a kid, I was extremely imaginative. I read a lot. And so I had this very active imagination and I was all too eager to concoct uh, these paranormal things. Like, and I had this sort of dual uh, bifurcated view on it, which is one, I was really terrified of like anything like non-earthly that might exist. Just the idea of that would like freak me out. I was very easily like scared of those things. But at the same time, I also really had a fascination with some of these things that weren't real. Cause obviously I always loved fantasy science fiction. Um, and I really wanted to believe that there was something, uh, beyond what was just the things that you could see and touch and, and just sort of like logic dictated. So I, I saw in your, in your notes here, you mentioned something like cryptids. And for me, like, I do remember as a kid really wanting to believe in the Loch Ness Monster and just be like, what if there is, like, a dinosaur or something, like, <laughs> like underneath that was frozen in ice? Like, could this be possible? And I just loved the idea of something that nobody believed in but turned out to be true. I, I you know, I've been to Loch Ness now. I lived in Scotland for a little while. and Oh, wow. Yeah, so I, I, I mean... I, I had no sightings while I was there, oh. but which is a bummer. Because, but I was like, really, like, oh man, what if I'm the guy who wants to see that? Like, and I remember looking at like, <laughs> I remember looking at those. There's that like famous photo from like the black and white one. Yeah, the surgeon photo. Yeah, yeah. And so I and I was like, oh, like what else could it be if it wasn't like? Yeah, I'm like sitting there as a ten year old trying to like logic out like, but there's a picture of it, right? Like clearly, it's real. <laughs> And being a writer, especially a writer of fantastical stories, has always encouraged me to have, you know, be able to tap into that imaginative part of like thinking beyond just the stuff that's in front of us. So I would say that while I'm probably not someone who believes in it, I do still find the idea of the the unknown or the paranormal or supernatural to be something that I... I find a little eerie, right? Like even now as an adult, like I have definitely like woken up from nightmares that involve like otherworldly things. And I'll just like lie awake for a little while being like, oh, it's dark. It's quiet. Like, is there something else? Like, you know, like your mind wanders and you start thinking about these things and like, it still freaks me out a little bit. I got to admit, I got to admit. So I'm in the exact same boat. I, I find it super fascinating as a kid. I would always gravitate towards those types of book. When it was like library day, I would go to the the worlds of the unknown and and read and get those ghost books and UFO books. I I knew what Project Blue Book was as a five year old, so that stuff was super interesting to me. And same as you, uh, we talked about this last week, where you know I'll wake up from uh, a nightmare about alien aliens abducting me, and you know my rational mind says it was just a dream. But then in the back of my mind, it's like, no, they just want you to think it's a dream. <laughs> well, your rational <laughs> mind doesn't operate at that, but like in the middle of the night, like you're ra- like, when oh, you yeah. wake up and it's dark, your rational mind is not in control. <laughs> that is totally like it's still sleeping animal instinct. Like there, it is dark and there is something hunting me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes my, my cat will walk under my nest protect and the light will turn on. <laughs> and I don't know if you've seen a nest protect that night. It looks like a UFO. <laughs> <laughs> but Angela, you need to remember the also uh, forgot to mention a very crucial part. You suffer from bouts of sleep paralysis. Yes, I. It's again like since I've been exercising more regularly since like 2012, which like seems like exer a long time. or exor. 
<laughs> yeah, those exorcisms really. Yeah, they got Did rid the of all the ghosts. Yeah, no, like P ninety X exercise. Okay, not not uh, Father Malachi exorcisms. <laughs> uh, I uh, I haven't had as many sleep paralysis bouts, but they still do happen from time to time, and they're terrifying. And so, like you know, we talk about alien abductions and stuff every once in a while, and I totally can see where someone would think that was aliens abducting them or whatever. And we've talked about this again, like shadow people freak me out, even though I don't believe they exist. And I think it's just something that your eyes playing tricks on you. The idea of shadow people and the idea of those black eyed kids that knock on people's doors and then kill them, that freaks me out, even though I don't think it's real. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. (laughs) So the notion of it scares you. Yeah, it's, it's like Dan was saying, it's just the idea of this unknown thing that we can't quantify is horrifying. It's well, it's, and it's an irrational thing that you have no way to protect yourself against. Right. Because it's like, you can think, Oh, if I'm worried about being mugged or something like I will avoid certain situations or avoid certain places or avoid going to certain places at certain times. Whereas like the, the, the this stuff is stuff where it's like it doesn't matter like right yeah. like anything you can do doesn't matter so avoid planet earth yeah exactly exactly you know and and that that is that is scary right because there's also something about like there's no place safe right like there's not like right. i can hold myself up in my house where it is my my safe place <laughs> no the aliens come right through your walls apparently so jerks we had we had done a whole this uh, this whole episode last week about uh, trauma and uh, alien abductees, and I think it was like the American Neurological Society was explaining how a lot of these people who claim alien abductions um, is just basically like they had woken up or had some sort of uh, incident during an operation or, or procedure or surgery, and that it was like a psychic wound almost that stayed with your brain. Yeah, no, I mean, it's certainly, again, it's like a way of applying the rational to the irrational, but like, yeah, I, I could totally see how that would be a... That would be the case. But yeah, I don't like unlike you, I think a little bit, Angela, like I, I avoided a lot of those, like some of the stuff as a kid, definitely the stuff that freaked me out. Like I, I, first of all, I hate horror movies. I don't like horror movies. Part of it because it's still, oh yeah, it totally worms my way into my brain of like imagining those things. Um, at least stuff, I, I kind of walk a line. Like there's stuff that I watch that is creepy, um, but is not, I feel like out and out horror, um, so like people make fun of me, of course, on the, on the incomparable <laughs> because I watch supernatural, which is a show that does deal with obviously paranormal and supernatural stuff. But to me, it's much more like, you know, it's like I, I liked Buffy too. Right. Like, and that was, yeah, I love Buffy. And so I, it's, I feel like it's very much in that vein. It's like, it's not something I find necessarily, there are creepy episodes and there are like one or two that definitely was like, yeah, I don't want to think too much about that one. Cause that one is creepy, but most of it is just feels more like fantasy than than horror to me um yeah. or at least my mind codifies it as like f- a fantasy story because it has a very even the stuff that's inexplicable has like a a logic and an order to it in that universe yeah and i i have to hand it to you for lasting uh with supernatural this long i gave up after i think season seven or eight whenever it was all those things are falling from the sky that's when i gave up there are some bad years in there, but it, it's actually, I feel like it's rebounded in the last couple of years. So I don't know. I, it's I, like 12 seasons. Uh, I believe they just got renewed for their 15th. <laughs> 15th. Yeah. Wow. wow. Got to Hey, it's apparently one of the most popular shows on the CW. So there you go. I, I liked watching stuff that would freak me out. Uh, I'll bring it up again. That unsolved mysteries with the bunk beds that haunted this house. Did you did you ever watch unsolved mysteries? Oh, that was a show. That that was a show that freaked me out. I would see commercials for it and be like, nope. 
unsolved. <laughs> what? Nope. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's something that like really all those things stuck with me. And whenever they brought on something paranormal, yeah, I would. It, I enjoyed torturing myself with that. I guess it's like <laughs> a, like a nine year old watching this stuff. Like, there's no way. And I used to watch it with my mom. There is no way I would ever allow my children to watch Unsolved Mystery. No, I mean I wouldn't watch it. I wouldn't watch it with them. Let's do a test, Angela. Like your kids are of an appropriate age to do that. Let's just do it. I thought I heard they were. Uh, I thought they. I heard they were rebooting Unsolved Mysteries too. They are for Netflix. Yeah. So there you go. You'll have your chance to like a All fresh right. new generation. <laughs> yeah. Well, weren't we joking about making your kids watch uh, like a Nightmare on Elm Street a, a little while ago too? Like I think that's a great idea. Oh God, no. Th- that was like literally one of my biggest fears as a kid that that series of movies because i remember seeing that again i remember seeing the commercials for them and i would just like have to leave the room <laughs> like i was yeah. just too too much for me like yeah i could not handle it even to this day i still don't particularly like i have gone to the movies when they're like you know show horror trailers beforehand and i'm like yep yeah, i'm just not gonna watch this i'm just going to look at something else <laughs> or not pay attention to it because nope don't need that it's kind of funny. I was trying, you know, I was kind of, we lost power the other night here and I was kind of thinking and talking to my fiance about, um, you know, being younger and things like that, which kind of led me to thinking about how uh, there's that part of my brain that gets excited by being scared much in the same way that like when you play hide and seek, it kind mm. of thrills you. And I feel like yeah. a lot of my yep. youthful um, sort of energy about that is kind of interlinked. Yeah, no, I can see that. I can see that. It has that same adrenaline rush uh yeah or or whatever chemicals are being released in your brain there right like definitely has the same sort of trigger thing but for me i i think some of it is just like anxiety inducing too like even like i I remember like hide and go seek would just make me like feel very like antsy like because i would get that sort of adrenaline like burst of like oh i can't sit still here like i'm just so uh you know like nervous about this but like it's not to say i didn't you know like freaked me out in the same way but like i can see how it's sort of a simpatico feeling the problem is right now there's uh, real things in the world that are uh, horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and yet somehow easier to deal with for me. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, as an adult now, like when when I want, like I, I have a hot, harder time watching horror movies now when like something bad happens to like a kid or a pet. That freaks me mm-hmm. out more than anything else. It's like I, I don't like seeing things in danger anymore. So I'll I'll watch more like uh, like the alien UFOs and stuff like that. That's not too bad. It's funny. My cousin, uh, one of my cousins, will tell a story about how when they were, oh geez, they must have just had their daughter in like the early nineties, and they went and saw the or somehow watched the the Mel Gibson movie Ransom. Oh hell yeah! And they were like, they had just had a baby, and they were like. They're like, that was the most terrifying movie we have ever seen in our lives about like a kid getting kidnapped because we have like a like a less than one year old. And I was like, yeah, that probably changes your your perspective on these things. Oh, yeah, totally. Kids ruin everything. <laughs> I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but uh, a movie like Blair Witch, right? So when I saw it when I was like 12 or 13, wasn't really scared. And then I got lost in the woods some years later. And then I returned to the movie when I was like 19 or 20. And it was truly um, sort of terrifying in a very realistic way because I'd experienced it. So I feel like as you grow older, what's that? The, you know, Steve Martin kind of talks about like how you become more conservative as you grow older comedically. And I feel it's like the same thing horror wise. You kind of like block yourself off slowly but surely uh, through lived experiences. Yeah, it makes sense. Like you, you haven't lived as many experiences experiences as a kid so therefore there are these these options you know like these more things that like you can link into those experiences so yeah that makes sense 
Yeah, it's sort of how time seems to go by faster as you get older because you're careening towards your death. <laughs> cool. Uh, is this like cool, your, cool, cool. your New Year's resolution is to mention this out loud to everyone that you can? Uh, yeah. Um, office memo? Yeah. I'll, I'll send an email tomorrow. <laughs> Something to look forward to. So some of our bread and butter here is obviously like we talk about UFOs and alien abductions and things like that. So uh, how do you feel about the concept of other worlds? I feel I feel good. Is that the answer? No. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, thanks, Danny. Uh, I almost spit out my water. <laughs> well, so here's the thing. There's like there's the two angles on it, right? Like on the one hand, there is the like rational part of me that is like the OK, the universe is huge. The odds of there not being intelligent life somewhere seem low like I, I assume that there are other worlds with intelligent life of some variety somewhere out there they may be very far away uh they may not be terrible they may be at like our level of advancement which means like the chances of us encountering each other are probably pretty low but i i believe that just mathematically the odds are they exist uh do i believe in you know the 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 little green men or the the grays coming and like you know abducting people no nah, not really i don't feel like wh- what's so interesting about us guys <laughs> sorry like i don't feel like that's the thing i do love it whenever there's the stories in the news about like oh scientists looked at this like there's this weird thing that scientists can't explain uh it might be aliens and like i have enough friends one of my again i keep mentioning one of my cousins but the same one probably he's a high school physics teacher and he has background in astronomy and all this and he's like you know it's never aliens that's the rule no it's never aliens right like so he's always that's my mind yeah he's always debunking these things like no it's something else it's just something stupid that we haven't figured out but it's not aliens uh but i like the i like thinking about it right because like when i remember coming up with these story ideas when i was younger about like part of me like fundamentally believes that the the humanity won't learn to work together until there is an like us extraterrestrials that we can be like oh well at least we're not them right like because that is totally how (laughs) humanity works and so that will be like the time where humanity bonds together is because there are aliens even if the aliens are nice we'll be like you know oh we're totally you know we're humans they're aliens finally a line that we can draw so you're kind of describing like the day the earth stood still kind of like the saucer landing on the white house lawn right exactly yeah or uh, independence day or you know what have you like um uh, I actually was thinking about, have you ever read, um, you know, Harry Turtledove, the uh, alternate history author? He's got a series about basically aliens invading during World War II. Uh, and so he's got like this whole alt history oh, series. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if they're any, I read them when I was like a teenager, so I don't know if they're any good. But I remember being really fascinated about this idea of like, oh, there's aliens and they're like picking sides and like playing politics and changes the whole course of the war and all this and like i I thought that was really cool so i i'm not a person who like like even in in my science fiction i don't even like delving into aliens that much it's just not something that's always interested me especially because i feel like i grew up with like the star trek view of aliens which is like yeah they're basically people with weird things on their foreheads right (laughs) (laughs) but isn't that so human centric isn't that so narcissistic to think it is exactly and i was like if there are aliens right you have that like oh there'll be nothing like what we can even conceive of no um, yeah just even look on earth and look at the stuff we have around us sure right my um my favorite portrayal of aliens, at least that I remember in recent years, is um, there's the science fiction writer Ian M. Banks has a book called The Algebraist. Uh, and I just remember having aliens that are like these like gas bags that hang out in like gas giants. And they're just these 
very slow like operate on like a totally different time scale because they they live a long time and like everything takes forever so i just like again something like that would be like yeah it would probably be just so alien really right like so alien uh that we would not even be able to really grok what we're seeing I think it's kind of interesting because we often get into uh, debates about different things. Like I, uh, so for example, like take Carl, Carl Sagan, right? Like the dude uh, did Cosmos, all of this stuff, and then spent his spare time writing about alien contact, literally, which I thought was kind of like a weird duality to exist. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll throw you uh, kind of a similar thing. Um, Harry Houdini obviously made a big, right. he had a, one of his big pastimes was debunking uh, mediums and psychics and stuff like that, which I always thought was interesting from a, because that was such a big part of it was so intrinsically linked in some ways to doing conjuring of in that era um that you know he was like well you know what i do are skills right like they are they are they are uh, practical real skills that you can do they just manifest themselves by looking like illusions for example but they are not anything supernatural and so i think he had a vested interest in going around and debunking people who were pretending to be in contact with them and 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 rightfully so since most of them were charlatans bilking people out of their money um but yeah i think there always is an interesting duality in a lot of those figures who have a fascination with the thing and proving it does or doesn't exist (laughs) then there's the other side of it where you know we have a character like sherlock holmes which was all about logic and reason but uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was the opposite, where he totally believed in that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I, I always fascinating to read about him too, because he was so deep into like a lot of that, and yet his character creation was so rational. Yeah, I mean, and and I was like, you know, writing about science fiction or fantasy for me, even though I don't necessarily have a belief in these things being real. I still have a fascination with them and I still want to portray them as real because you want to make the stories feel real, even if it's not something you personally believe in. Well, and then this is why I like having a podcast that talks about it because I've always found it super interesting yet. I I have a hard time believing it. And I've, I've come across some really interesting things in the research we've done for this show, but still I'm, I'm still firmly in like the Carl Sagan camp. And that's fine. Which, I, yeah, uh, it annoys Brian to no end. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Because So we have this like patented double density scale of believability, right? Which is like a one to four scale where a one is a Carl Sagan, totally rational. And the four is like a Whitley Strieber, the guy who wrote Communion, who's an experiencer who believes everything. So I fall more in the, like, the three to 3.5 camp, whereas Angelo is like a one to two kind of guy. You, you've gone <laughs> yeah. up to 3.5. You used I to know. be like a 2.5. I, well, I told you, I'm all in. I'm all in in 2019. I'm into believing a lot more. Yeah, I'm very much like a 1.5. I'm amused that in your in your um, notes that you shared with me, you had a lot of lists of various things. And I had to laugh because one of the things on your list are rods. (laughs) I don't I couldn't tell if that was because you had heard like so years. My friend Tony Sindelar, who's on a bunch of of, uh, incomparable podcasts with me and who I've been friends with since like the fifth grade. um, He is like super into cryptids. Uh, That is like something that he has always just been really like interested in. And we had for a little while, probably almost 10 years ago now, uh, we had a podcast called the Doomcast, where we would just like basically sit around and like sh- make improv a show. But he would talk about cryptids a lot. And one of the earliest things he would talk about, we talked about in a really early episode, were rods and how they're the no stupidest, way. the stupidest cryptids. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we, yeah. firstly, how dare you, sir? Uh, how dare you? 
Uh, is no, there a, uh, is there a stupider one? We, is that what you're saying? No, that is literally the stupidest one. It's called you used a VHS camcorder to record. Yeah, exactly. Like that's, bugs. That's I think what he said at the time. Is like it's just a thing in cameras that people think is an alien, but it's just a <laughs> stupid thing in cameras. No. So. Angela and I love continually bringing up the idea of rods because we'll eventually do an episode and we keep threatening to because it is such a stupid idea. And this guy, Jose Escamilla, who kind of created like a cottage industry out of the idea of rods, um, also uh, created a, a movie uh, called Moon Rising, all about how the moon is fake. Um, so, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's, you know what? Uh, I think the, mo- the most offensive part of it is it's a dumb name. <laughs> like you couldn't even come up with a better name than rods. It's just it's just a thing. It's just a physical. You can get a physical rod. That's fine. Like that's not an interesting name for a made up creature i i love that you picked out rods from this though that's great <laughs> uh rods are uh, uh i think are, they are the stupidest thing i like in terms of like everything that we've talked about i think like i'm trying to think of like dumber things that we've we've covered and i think rods is definitely at the top it's, of like the yeah. dumb dumb i don't things. even i don't even know as much about it as tony does but i i was he told me enough to convince me that it was dumb <laughs> Double density. so dan i'm gonna be in boston at the end of march and uh, I was curious if there's anything beyond the normal kind of thing that I should be on the lookout for in terms of anything weird or spectacular or fun. Yeah, I was thinking about this because, uh, you know, you mentioned it and I was like, man, I'm trying to, I wish I had a better answer because, I mean, certainly, as you point out, the the Salem witch trials are a, a big part of our history here. Uh, and there's a lot of sites in Salem. Salem, obviously, is still like a huge town for like Halloween is crazy there. Like I, I avoid it like the plague just because it's too many people. But um, I, and I know there are your usual assortment of like ghost tours and there are certainly like some really old cemeteries. So I think that plays into it. And I was looking a little bit beforehand because I was kind of curious. And I guess there's one or two hotels in the area that have been around for a long time. Uh, including the Omni Parker House, which is a really old hotel that is said to have ghosts in them, but like certainly not a lot that I have experienced. Um, but where I was going to mention was I have actually the the book that I am revising right now, which has not been sold, but I've been working on it for a couple of years, is actually an urban fantasy book set in Boston. Uh, and so, oh. yeah, it deals with like, yeah, basically is a ghost story set in Boston. Oh boy. And it's a little more something like your sort of Buffy or supernatural tile style taking that involves like a super, a detective who is a, a spiritual consultant. And it, you know, it's a world where these fantastic ghosts and all these other creatures are real. And so I was tapping into some of the stuff in, in Boston's history, but a lot of it was stuff that I was just sort of concocting myself based on interesting stuff stories or just other stuff in the area like obviously it's a town with a lot of history uh, especially around like the revolutionary war uh, and when you have anything that's been around for several hundred years uh, it's got a lot more of these various like strange stories and stuff associated with it so i've been like slowly digging into parts of that but I haven't really, I don't have any really good specific ones, but I'm sure. So what you're saying is like, I should create my own. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but I, I think there are, I think there are probably are just a lot more that I'm just not aware of that much. I do. I was fascinated to see when I was looking around uh, a little bit that there is a, uh, a, this hotel, the Omni Parker house is said to have a ghost of Charles Dickens in it because he like lived there for a little while. And I was like, I don't know. If I were Charles Dickens, I probably wouldn't haunt that one hotel I went to for like a year. That seems that seems pretty lame, really. Uh, I feel like there's other places for me to be. 
Well, when I was there this summer, I liked the um, the little. Well, are you supposed to like a cemetery? I don't know. Sure, but <laughs> I found them like I found them really fascinating. These old tombstones was really interesting. oh yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch right around the Boston Common. There's Copps Hill Cemetery. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, there's lots of the King's Burial Ground, I think. Like, there's a lot of them. And they're just sort of, like, nestled in among yeah. all the buildings. You'll just be like, oh, hey, there's a graveyard here. This is weird. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was, it was was odd to see. And we went to Salem. And uh, I'll just say, like, we were, we were in Boston because we were going to be flying down to Florida from there because it was way cheaper. And the uh, production values in Salem uh, compared to the production values at Disney World are uh, not the same. I imagine they would be a little different. Yeah, the little animatronics seemed a little uh, stiff, but uh, <laughs> the, the people presenting were actually really uh, interesting, and they were really involved in uh, the explanation and stuff, so it was, it was actually interesting in that way. It was, uh, it was bizarre to be like in this musty basement with these bizarre animatronics, but it was still kind of interesting. And did you feel I, like you were at like a weirdly weird like Chuck E. Cheese? Like yeah. Food? Yes, actually, like slightly slightly less high tech than Chuck E. Cheese, but still like uh, scary. <laughs> Double density. I will mention. I do have one ghost story. All right. Well, oh. that, is, that that I experienced, which I will tell you. Let's do this. So uh, when I was, uh, t- let's see, I was probably just just before I turned 21. This was when I lived in Scotland. I'd lived there for six months during college. And during a week of my vacation, I decided I would take a, a, a bus tour. So one of these tours, you know, like get together, sign up to go with a bunch of other people um, uh, on a tour around the Scottish Highlands. And so there were probably, I don't know, 20 of us on this bus. And we went to a bunch of different places is when I went to Loch Ness. And on one night, uh, our third or fourth night, we stopped at a, um, the hostel we stopped at for the night was a castle that had been turned into a hostel. Um, and it was kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And so we had to like go and get all our provisions beforehand. Um, and I was not a super heavy drinker at that point, but I had like decided to like sort of picked up an appreciation for cider, which I, I liked a lot. And so Went to the the hostel and we were as we were like uh, unpacking our stuff. I stayed in a room with uh, a few other folks, a few other guys, and like there was a sign on the back of the door that actually talked about ghost sightings in the hostel, including like you know ghost the figures seen walking up and down the hallways at certain times of night. And they also had a ghost tour. And so a bunch of the people I with, I didn't know any of these people before on the bus tour, but like we'd gotten to know each other over the past couple of days. We decided we would go uh, on the ghost tour uh, later that night, and so. Our room was on this hallway, and at the end of the hallway, there was this statue, uh, like you know, like a marble stone statue, probably two or three feet tall, of sort of this like cherub. It was a little weird, but like it was there. We're like, okay, that's kind of a strange, but it like, kind of fits with the whole castle dynamic. Um, and so we uh, we went uh, later on that night to this ghost tour, and I remember the caretaker sort of taking us around and talking about how he would like walk around at night and he'd see the doors opening and closing, and like you know you know talked about like spotting ghosts and stuff like this. And I think we were all you know maybe we'd had a drink or two at that point. We all thought this was pretty funny um, until we uh, we went back and we um, noticed. I think it was before we went to bed. Like we came back kind of late. You know, it was like one in the morning or something. I noticed like. The, the the angel statue was gone and i was like <laughs> well that's weird right like that thing was you know it was only a couple feet high but it, it probably weighed like 80 90 pounds like it was heavy it was solid stone and so i remember us like kind of being like wigged out by this like because we had just been on this tour about ghosts and so we're like all like 
staying up late and like talking about all of your like do you think they like come around and take them while you're on the ghost tour just to freak you out or do like we think actually something happened here and i was like like i can even remember discussing like we all we all saw it right like it existed and i i even remember going over and looking at the carpet and there was like an impression in the carpet of like the like the base of the statue and so we're like all right well uh, you know, I guess we'll go to bed. And if that thing's here in the morning, we are seriously going to freak out. <laughs> uh, and so we went to bed and we woke up in the morning and it was still gone. And I remember being like, well, we're packing up to go, whatever. Like, oh man, this is super weird. Like, this is sort of like the most unexplained thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And so, you know, we pack up, we get on the bus and I think I realized I, I had either left something or I uh, had to go get somebody from the room. So I went back to the room and I go in and as I come out and I'm closing the door of the room, I hear this laughing behind me and I turn around and I see this group of like four other, you know, kids roughly my age, you know, late teens, early 20s, who I didn't know, I think were on some other tour that was also staying there that night because it was a pretty big castle. And they were like rolling the statue down the hall. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> what the hell? And they're like, oh, yeah, we were just trying to freak out one of our friends by moving the statue. I guess we got, I guess we got you guys too, huh? And I was like, yeah. So I actually have a picture of them standing there with the statue as they moved it back into position. <laughs> and I was glad because like, I felt like, well, all right. I, on the one hand, it was nothing supernatural, but I at least answered the question to my satisfaction. But I do remember it freaking me the hell out at the time being like, that's like a heavy statue. Where did it go? Like, how could you just make it? disappear so and that is my one ghost back, story yeah i would have i would have never known i would have just been like that probably would still bother me to this day yeah you would have think that like, did you ever say a doctor who episode with the the angels? yes exactly well this was, was years angels, yeah. before that years before yeah. that. if i had seen that episode i would have been freaking terrified <laughs> uh angela do you have any scary ghost stories i, I can't remember at this point well, I, I think I just we've had that part to, of the night where my brain is atrophied. So no, I don't really have any scary ghost stories. I do. Uh, in terms of the scariest thing I saw in Boston was the driving. Uh, <laughs> Nothing that, ghostly about it, but it is terrifying. Uh, look, I I've driven downtown Montreal many times, which Quebec is known for terrible driving, but Boston is on a whole other level, and I've never heard so many horns honking. You just kind of need to learn to live with it. That's the thing. Is like. <laughs> essentially once you once you learn once you live with it for long enough you become part of the system <laughs> <laughs> no but no scary ghost stories on my my end brian uh, nothing uh too frightening uh, you know me it's it's all about the alien abductions i know uh forever and ever also like all the things that stress you out on a micro level like what? Like, oh, like the most frightening thing for me is like losing all my backups for my my photos. <laughs> That's like the scariest thing. Do you have you updated your office secret hard drives at all recently? No, I haven't. Is, is that a thing on your list to do? I should. That's all right. Uh, you I know, feel like this this is this episode slowly dying a, a quiet death. <laughs> I'm going to pivot to Dan. Dan, uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at dmorin uh, or on Instagram, also at dmorin. And of course, you can find my website at dmorin.com, where we'll tell you all about my wonderful books, including the upcoming The Bayern Agenda. Uh, and of course, on many, many podcasts, including Clockwise, Rebound, Inconceivable, The Incomparable. Uh, yeah, so pretty much I'm everywhere. If you like, if you can't find me, it's not my fault. That's my point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Angela, where, pe- where can people find you? 
You're supposed to say that. You usually say it, but you can find me at Angelo Furin on Twitter. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at double underscore density, Facebook. No, not even anymore. At, at no Twitter, more Facebook. Double, we got rid of Facebook two weeks ago uh, yeah. as a group effort. Congrats to us. Uh, on Instagram at double density podcast and over at double density.net, you can click on the contact button or email us at double density podcast at gmail.com. Uh, Let us know what you are thinking. Dan, it's a pleasure. And everyone, you can tune in next week as we join an in progress roundtable discussion about Project Blue Book. Um, so we will see you guys somewhere on the internet. See ya. I was going to make a joke about a gas bag in the White House, but I decided not to. <laughs> wow. Wow. All right, that's a dead joke right there. So, yeah, no, so. it's not I won't object. <laughs>